Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. We are a weekly Columbus-centric podcast focusing on the civics, lifestyle, entertainment, and people of our city. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. This week, I sat down with local entrepreneur, project manager, community builder, and writer, Jay Klaus, to talk about his work and experience in entrepreneurship. We cover the importance of the cross-pollination of communities and ideas, his prioritization of work and managing of time, the similarity between comedy and entrepreneurship, the importance of asking good questions, and we wrap up with advice for aspiring entrepreneurs and the state of affairs in Columbus, Ohio. A little bit of housekeeping on the interview. Since Jay and I recorded it, he's actually announced that he has left Crosschecks to start his own company, The Unreal Collective. You can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Also, The Confluence Cast is on Patreon. Find out how to support this podcast on our website, theconfluencecast.com, or at patreon.com slash confluence. The Confluence Cast is sponsored by Kepri, a full-service web and mobile development company specializing in design and programming services. Defined through skill and innovation, Kepri works with their clients to create user-centric, technology-based products that innovate. Kepri provides complete technology solutions with a solid strategy to meet your goals and grow your brand. See examples of their work and explore what Kepri can do for you at Kepri.com. Enjoy the interview. Sitting down here with Jay Klaus, self-declared entrepreneur, product manager, community builder, writer. Jay, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Good. Thanks for taking the time. Jay and I sort of know each other tangentially. We sit on the Create Columbus Commission together, which we talked to Jordan Davis about here on the Confluence cast. Jay, sort of give us the, give us your mantra. Who, who are you? Who am I? Well, I'm a self-declared lot of things, as you just read off. Mm-hmm. What it comes down to is I like to do really cool stuff with really cool people, and I like those experiences to be pretty unique. So that's kind of put me in the position where I'm starting my own things, uh, holding cool positions on cool boards like mm-hmm. the Great Clumps Commission, organizing some cool events like Startup Weekend. Uh, I just I, I'm allergic to board, boredom, and okay. uh, that's kind of <laughs> how I deal with it. <laughs> and your day job, you work for Crosschecks. Yes. Can you give us the rundown, sort of what is Crosschecks? Mm-hmm. Uh, Crosschecks is on a mission to create an identity layer for healthcare. Basically, uh, the founder is Sean Lane looked at healthcare, and uh, he had a background in the military and intelligence, and said, we have all these disparate data silos in healthcare between systems, uh, and they actually intentionally try to protect this data, which leads to uh, individuals having all these different, usually paper records in all kinds of systems that get stale, and you go from one system to another, and it's hard to relate those records to, en- to one another and have one overarching record of note for a person. Okay. So we have hardware and software products traditionally for hospital weight rooms. Uh, we've been developing a software product for larger healthcare organizations called, um, accountable care organizations. Okay. 
And um, so what is that the weight room product? Like, what does that look like? It started off uh, with a biometric fingerprint reader. Okay. And you would go up to a desk, they would tie your fingerprint to your medical record in their EHR so it could verify your identity. And that was to cut down on fraud as well as prescription drug abuse. Okay. But also really serve to create that uh, beginning identity layer to say this person is who they say they are. That evolved into a software product that allowed registrars to search more quickly within their EHR to find correct records because an issue with a lot of EHR electronic health records is they create multiple records for a single patient because they may type something in wrong or forget that it was an existing patient. Okay. And so the software product evolved to a help them find the right record faster, tie a fingerprint to it and B um, resolve duplicate records within their system so they consolidate those and don't miss part of a patient's story because they're looking at the wrong record. Is there some risk of, of merging incorrect records? Well, they all... I just know, when I was living on North Campus, there happened to be a middle-aged black man named Tim Fulton who lived two blocks (laughs) away from me, who, uh, when I would go to the pharmacy, even when I would go to vote, I I would be confused with this person. Mm -hmm. So Each of these systems have thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of records in their system. Okay. And so what our software does is take... Uh, signals of records from their system say, hey, we think these may be duplicates, Mm -hmm. and there's still a human process to go through and figure out on their end if that is a duplicate or not and if they want to merge it. But we do the legwork of saying these are things we flag as duplicates up front, and now um, you don't have to sort through your EHR kind of guessing and doing that work manually. Got it. Cool. Where are you from? I am from West Central Ohio, a little farm town called Salina. Okay. Um, went to high school at Salina High School. There's a lake, Grand Lake St. Mary's, that is there. That is the second largest man-made lake in the United States. Oh. And um, also, uh, in recent years, has been the breeding ground of some blue-green algae that's actually a neurotoxin, which is a fun story if we wanted to get into that. But <laughs> come from a farm town where sports are pretty big. What's the man-made lake there for? It was to be a lake or it was part of the Miami Erie Canal. Okay. Um, to help transport goods Got it. on the canal. Okay. So, um, long, long time ago. Just curious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fishing's been pretty good. It became a pretty big source of tourism until there was that health risk. But uh, <laughs> until you couldn't swim in it anymore. Until you couldn't, then you really couldn't. They put a sign up that said "No swimming, no boating." Uh, it actually has a very pungent aroma that makes the whole area smell pretty bad in the summer when it warms up. Okay. But it's been getting better in recent years. What's the, the industry there? Uh, there's a lot of um, manufacturing. There's okay. Crown and Capped. Uh, Crown makes like all the lift trucks for the world. Okay. Um, and I forget what CAPT does, but a lot of manufacturing. There used to be Huffy bicycles there as well. And of course, a lot of agriculture. Okay. It's, it's the, at one point it was the highest agricultural area per capita in the United States too. Okay. And um, what do your parents do? My parents and my entire extended family are educators. Okay. Both, mostly high school teachers. Okay. Got it. Um, and then how did you make the jump to Columbus, Ohio, or were there places in between? Uh, my parents and my oldest sister, I have two older sisters, they went to Ohio Northern University. Mm-hmm. In high school, I went to Ohio Northern for our football camps and just really, really didn't like it. My second sister, who is only four years older than me, uh, went to Ohio State, and um, I've always been pretty close to her and 
felt like our personalities were pretty similar. Mm -hmm. And I would visit her in college, check it out, and thought that it was another thing that it was something that I wanted to do too. The bigger city was more interesting to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't know, frankly, what I wanted to do when I was coming out of college or coming out of high school. Mm -hmm. And going to Ohio State is a pretty place, pretty good place to go when you don't know what you want to do because you have a lot of flexibility right. <laughs> to do just about anything. It's a big place. It's a big place. And what did you major in? I started in exploration, which is interesting. Not a major. It's not a major. It is what Ohio State calls their undecided program, which I think is awesome. Okay. And then I moved into journalism for about a year as my major. At some point during my journalism experience, I found the entrepreneurship organization at Ohio State. Mm-hmm and got really into the idea of entrepreneurship. Because in journalism, I was, I was writing, which I loved, but I was writing stories about people doing cool stuff. And then when I saw this entrepreneurship organization, I saw people my age doing the cool stuff and mm -hmm. realized that I could do the cool stuff too. So I switched into the business college, didn't know what I wanted to do, thinking that money was the goal of life, I switched into finance. Okay. And really, really disliked it. Well, finance is just managing the money. It's not, uh, <laughs> it's not necessarily uh, making it. Yeah, I just I wasn't so great at the numbers, the arithmetic and the calculus. So I switched finally into marketing and still somehow got out in, in four years. <laughs> great. Good for you. Talk about sort of the projects that you've worked on over the past. So, and I'm sorry, how long ago was that that you graduated? Graduated in 2014. Okay. So recently. Very recently. What have you been working on? Um, in college, I started a kind of rinky-dink student marketplace that was basically Craigslist for Ohio State students. Okay. You had to log in with an Ohio State credential to get into it. Mm -hmm. uh, that was my first foray into, into entrepreneurship. At, at the end of my senior year of college, I got in touch with um, a guy named Alex Burkhart, who was starting a company in Cincinnati called Tixers. Mm -hmm. He was a single founder at the time. He was going through an accelerator. And he basically said, I need a strong number two person uh, to help me do this. I can't do it on my own. And he reached out to me um, as president of the entrepreneurship organization at the time okay. saying, I want you to help me find somebody. And so I met with him and we were doing a small business career fair soon. And I thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to get him to go into this career fair. Uh, there's a hundred bucks to organization. Cool. Mm -hmm. But I started talking to him and he was explaining the idea and having done this college marketplace myself, I thought that meant that I knew something about marketplaces and it was the level of opportunity that I wanted to do mm -hmm. out of college. So I joined on and so you were essentially the Dick Cheney of yeah. ta tasked with finding <laughs> the person and ended up becoming the person yourself. Yes. I, I often consider myself the Dick Cheney of all kinds of things. <laughs> uh, and so did that take you down to Cincinnati for a little bit or were you still here? No. One of the stipulations and there, were, this was, this is pretty serious. This is basically a co-founding ar arrangement because he hadn't started a whole lot yet. Okay. And so there was this courting period of about a month where we talked and tried to see if it was a good fit. Um, and one of my stipulations was that I didn't want to relocate. I wanted okay. to stay in Columbus, which was fine. The whole thing was digital. Um, I worked remotely for two years and every month or two, I would go down for a few days and spend time in Cincinnati. But we, we learned to communicate very, very well digitally or pick okay. up the phone and talk. Okay. I imagine given that you were so young, you were sort of able to, there didn't have to be a whole lot of money involved. No, not at all. I mean, being a purely digital organization, even the, the startup costs of the business were pretty minimal. Mm -hmm. um, and when, when we got started, we basically did a budget for both of us. We both, we both did our budget, saw what our hard expenses were going to be, 
gave ourselves rent, a very food, exactly right gave ourselves a very small discretionary income and um, just basically covered our own expenses when we're on our own okay and then from Tixers went to crosschecks right right so about um, a few months into Tixers we raised some seed round capital something like 280k and that was in 20 that was in July of 2014 in March of 2015, we sold the company to a company in Florida that developed native apps. Okay. And so we had a 12-month period that we were contractually obligated to work for that company to get our full earnout. Basically, hand everything over. Yeah. Yeah. Hand everything over. We had we had a set of metrics that we were measured against our performance. Okay. And the deal was, you get this upfront cash and stock and. You have 12 months. These are your benchmarks for performance. Based upon how you do against those metrics, you'll get some more cash at the end of 12 months. That was all negotiated ahead of time. Like Correct. you were aware of it. You Correct. were comfortable with it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So that was that was really good because we were able to pay our investors back in a very short amount of time with a modest return. Right. And then Alex and I were able to. Well, um, you've already exited a, a established business as well. Right. 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 Um, which is awesome. That was that, that was amazing. I remember when I was going into Tixers out of college, I was texting my parents and saying, this is what I was doing. Cause at the time I was considering, uh, consulting. I had, I had done interviews with Deloitte and McKinsey mm-hmm. and I hadn't decided by, you know, April of my senior year when I was about to graduate mm-hmm. and I was texting my parents and saying, this is the deal. I'm going to do this. Uh, this is what equity means. <laughs> right. <laughs> if we, if we do well, uh, not that they're not it, smart be, people, but they just hadn't dealt with that space yeah, before. Exactly. They're right. very smart people, but they didn't, they, they hadn't dealt with that at all. And so I was justifying to them because it, it felt like a lot of times in the beginning, my parents kind of thought that I was playing house. Mm-hmm. Like not actually getting a job or joining the real world, just kind of doing this fake thing that right. <laughs> I wanted to do. Oh, Jay's fucking around with his friends. <laughs> exactly. Right. So I had to explain um, what that meant and what the implications were and why it was worth chasing. And uh, unbelievably, it worked out in like a two and a half year window. Yeah. I mean, that's normally at least an eight year exactly. process. Exactly. Did you guys even, and I apologize for not being totally familiar with Tixers, but did it get to beyond an MVP? Was it just, Oh yeah. um, It was a viable product. Yeah. Okay. Um, we very briefly had a full time CTO. Okay. And during that time we also hired on a part-time engineer and he was a former, former brandery alum. And so we developed quite a bit in that short period of time, but for, uh, reasons of life getting in the way, they both went off to do their own thing. And okay. so we worked with contractors for that time forward. It was pretty slow development on the product front, but we got really good at finding ways to get scrappy and find third parties to plug into and APIs to leverage mm-hmm. to uh, build this without a whole lot of overhead of people. Okay. And yeah, we were we were doing tens of thousands of dollars in sales every month. And um, I think at the end of the two two years, we had done just under a million dollars in sales. Um, it wasn't the flashiest product. I mean, your competitors. It was a it was a ticketing company, mm-hmm. and it was a marketplace. Yeah, it was, yeah. A, it was a secondary marketplace. So on the front end, if you're buying tickets, it was very reminiscent of a StubHub or a Vivid Seats. Okay. The differentiator was if you had tickets instead of listing them and waiting for a third party to come and buy them mm-hmm. and like watching the price and the market and everything. Right. We made an offer to buy those tickets up front in site credit, called a Tixers credit. Okay. It was like a gift card. 
the way that manifested itself was we worked with, for example, Xavier University in Cincinnati. They had season ticket holders and package holders that would buy these season tickets or these packages knowing they wouldn't go to all the games. Right. They could it's li- just like people having baseball tickets, right? Mm-hmm. They could liquidate those very, very quickly and okay. then use those towards other tickets. And yeah. were, were the third-party partners like Xavier University, like you got them to buy in in that they sort of allowed you to accept those tickets? Right. right. We, had, we had a formal arrangement with Xavier University. Um, we, we had some relationships with the Reds and the Bengals as well. Okay. And that was, that was 2014 and 2015, which were banner years for Xavier University and the Cincinnati Bengals, best years in, in program history, which is amazing timing. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the front end, if you're buying tickets, it looked a lot like StubHub or, or whatever. So um, it's a, it was a brutal industry, super competitive space. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we, we built it and we, we competed. We, th- we found ways to market it that were cost effective. We, we were really, really good about our burn. <laughs> good. A couple of terms that we've dropped that people may not know about MVP that I mentioned earlier, minimum viable product. And then burn rate is simply the amount of money that you're spending. It's while not making money, right? Yeah. I mean, even Mostly. if you're making money, it's, it's looking at your monthly expenses. How right. quickly are you going through? It's cash? the money that's going out the door. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then how did you end up with cross checks? So at the end of, uh, Tixers, and we were per- the company that purchased us was called One Up Sports. Okay, we were getting to the end of our twelve month earnout, and I was just at a point where I didn't want to work uh, for that company anymore. Could you have continued to work for them? I could have. Yeah. Okay. I could have, and I, I I was kind of jaded with the ticketing industry. It was a gross industry, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't super interested in it, and I was looking around at my options because to this point, you know, I'd gone through college. I had helped start a company that then sold and a lot of my identity was wrapped up in this idea of being an entrepreneur and being basically a co-founder of a company mm-hmm. and it, it, that was actually a pretty hard time to figure out what I wanted to do because my identity was so much wrapped up in that and I thought you know I have all these relationships in Columbus with other founders and CEOs of companies that I feel like I'm a peer because I, I'm doing it too mm-hmm. if I don't start something on my own which I didn't know what I would want to do for five to 10 years on my own. Right. How do I maintain those relationships and not fall into this, like what I thought to be an invisible, but present hierarchy in the community. Okay. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I, I recall there was, there was a conversation I had in college with an entrepreneur that came to talk to the, uh, the business builders club, the entrepreneurship organization. Okay. And I don't know why this stuck out to me so much, but he said, basically, you guys can start companies very inexpensively at your age and you can get an email response from just about anybody because you can say founder in your email signature right. and that puts you on a level. And I've always kind of worked with, um, had relationships with people that were older than me mm-hmm. and doing really cool stuff. And I felt like I could prop that up by being, uh, at a high level in an organization myself Okay, and leaving that, um, now I'm relying on, yeah, that experience, but it's still a pretty shallow experience, a couple of years and I'm still pretty young. How do I join an organization at a high level and still maintain these level of respect from CEOs, founders of companies here locally? Right. Because let's, let's say, let's say I'm a startup founder and I want to get in touch with the CEO of nationwide. Mm-hmm. I have a pretty good shot at working through people and getting a conversation with the CEO of Nationwide because I'm the founder and CEO of what I'm doing. Right. 
if I, instead of doing that out of college, join nationwide at an entry level, it's actually harder for me in my estimation to have the same conversation with the same person. That's fair. And I thought that hierarchy would exist outside of that organization too. You could peg somebody and say, this person is this level at this company. I can see where they are in relation to me. Because humans just love heuristics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why didn't you make the choice to go off and start something else? Just simply because you couldn't identify that that market entry point or? A little bit. Having done this experience with Tixers, I realized that we were exceedingly lucky to get out in two and a half years. Yeah, you were. And if I really wanted to make a go at it again, I would be looking at a five to 10 year window. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what that was. I mean, my experience was college where I was thinking about small world college problems of people who don't have money, Mm -hmm. followed by the ticketing industry, which I got to know pretty well, but also realized I was not interested in. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have the industry experience to find a problem that I could solve. And I didn't want to just go make a product for making a product's sake because I know how hard that is now. Okay. And I, frankly, I just, no, I didn't know what I wanted to do on my own. I, I wanted to take some time off was, okay. was my plan. I was going to take several months off, think about it, go on a 10 day silent meditation retreat in Wisconsin. Okay. Um, and then some plans changed because I got in touch with, um, the VP of business development at Crosschecks. They had an open position that sounded a lot like my skill set. Okay. And what is your role at Crosschecks again? I am uh, the head of our network products. Okay. Basically, though, if you want to relate that, it's a product manager role. Okay. So. And let's get into that. What does product manager mean specifically? It's it's kind of a it's kind of a new discipline, and it's I like to think of it as you can make a mean spreadsheet. I know that. <laughs> I'm getting better. <laughs> that wasn't so good when I was in finance in college, but I'm getting better. <laughs> Um, I look at it as kind of the glue between a very cross-functional team that's bringing a product to market. Okay. So we have a team of engineers who is building the product. Mm -hmm. We have a, we have, uh, user experience designers who find ways to make that product beautiful and functional to the user. Mm -hmm. Um, we have a marketing team that has to message that product to a user, find the way to position it. So it speaks to their needs Mm -hmm. and a sales team to go out and sell it. Right. The product manager, let alone the stakeholders within the company and yeah, externally. Yeah. Right. Let alone all that. But between those four functions, the product manager is sort of in charge of the vision of that product, being a champion for the users, understanding who the user is, what they want. So you can interpret that into product requirements, how this should be built. So it solves a problem mm-hmm. that you can relay to the engineering team and also the user experience designer. So you can build that for form and function. Mm-hmm engineers build it so it actually is a reality. I speak to marketing to say, this is what the profile of the user is. Let's build out what this looks like mm-hmm. and how we can position that message to them. And then we speak to sales with that same kind of um, intention as well so they can go and sell it properly. Okay. And day to day, you know, I do technical project planning. I, I break, in, break down all the requirements of the product into what are called tickets small bite-sized chunks of functionality that engineers can pick up and, and, and work on mm-hmm. uh, uh, with the code. And I, pr- I project the product roadmap, the timelines, when this will be completed based on the requirements that we're writing. And is it an agile process to an extent in that your those tickets are sprints? Exactly. Got exactly. it. Um, and I will inc- I'm not going to get into it, but I'll include <laughs> yeah. a, a link to explain That's- the agile work process and, and scrums and sprints and all yeah. of that stuff, uh, in the show notes. 
Um, so is it fair to say that you took the job sort of to almost formalize a little bit your skill set and, and sort of prove out, not only can I do this, I have done this. Mm-hmm. The way the role was described was it was a lot of product validation. Okay. It, it was, we're going to have ideas internally. We want you to come up with some ideas. We want you to approach the market and find uh, how we can build that product. Just validate that idea. And customers are going to have ideas and request exactly. functionality. Exactly. So when I joined in June of 2016, there was a concept and a target market. And they said, we want you to go and talk to independent physicians and figure out how we can position this product to work for them. And so for the first month plus, I was in my car all day visiting 20 physician offices a day okay, and trying to talk to office managers, receptionists, and ultimately doctors if I could mm-hmm. to find a way to validate this idea and, and position this product. I came back and I had some suggestions and a lot of findings based on a lot of data, mm-hmm. hundreds of interactions. And they said, that's great. Uh, we're going to build that product. We want you to basically product manage that. Okay. So you did, you were the validation for the product. I was, it was actually okay. closer to a sales role when I joined. Yeah. And so is the product in the market at this point? It is. Okay. Uh, what we found does was, it work? It does. <laughs> Good. It took several months to build to the point where the validation that I had received was for a product that had a, a set of functionality that took literally like six months to build. Okay. And we, we put that out into a lot of doctor's offices, both in Columbus and in Albany, New York. Okay. And what we found was the sales process took a lot of uh, high-touch, person-to-person selling, mm-hmm. which is an expensive technique for acquiring customers. Right. And so while we validated that market, we needed a better way to sell it that was more cost-effective. Okay. And at the same time we were discovering that, we had an opportunity in a different market that was high revenue, and so we kind of shifted to, to go after that. So we have, we have customers that are still using that product that's in the market, but we've, we've put a little bit of a pause on developing that Got product it. itself. And so what, in terms of your philosophy, I've learned a lot from, you know, the daily email that you send out, which there'll be a link in the show notes for people to subscribe (laughs) to that as well. You seem to me like the kind of person who has a five-year or 10-year plan. What does that look like for you right now? I want to spend more of my time making things that connect with people. Okay. And the way that looks is, and I think this is a lot of the reason that I was drawn to product managing in the first place. Mm-hmm. One, I was doing it at Tixers because I had to. It was two of us. We had to plan the product and somebody had to help build it. And I really, really liked that. And so that that experience played into what I'm doing at Crosschecks now. Um, and I've always been drawn to the aspect of I can talk to people, find out something that's useful for them and make a solution to solve that. And that just like feeds me. It feels great. Okay. The problem is as a product manager, I'm a step removed from the making. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of hands in the pot, and it's there's just something very cathartic about creating something on your own and not needing to ask permission or not needing to you know get buy-in from other people. You make it because you want to make it, and you put it out, and the people that like it like it, and the people that don't, don't. Right. So what I like to do, and, and this is kind of the overarching theme of my philosophy, like I was saying at the beginning, I care about meeting really cool people, really interesting people, connecting with them genuinely, authentically, mm-hmm. and doing cool things with them, frankly, Okay, frankly. And so that, I think and that so that feeds into the stuff you've done with Startup Weekend and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't really articulated it. It just gets me excited. I like, I like to learn a lot. 
I like to do new things, meet new people. And there, there's just an innate human desire to connect with one another. Right. And so I, I'm really in that space. So I don't know, five to 10 years is a long time, but I, I do have a little bit of a plan for what I'm doing with, with these daily emails I'm sending out some mm-hmm. of the other ideas that go along with that, that I'm slowly building mm-hmm. that I hope to be sustainable on its own, that I can do that for, for a while. Gotcha. Talk about some of the community builder work that you've done. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that started uh, with the Business Builders Club as well. Okay. Uh, senior year of college, I, I took on leading that organization, and part of that was membership. How do we build up membership for it? At the same time, I had begun organizing Startup Weekend. Startup Weekend is a 54-hour community event where mm-hmm. it's basically experiential education over a weekend, teaching people what it's like to ideate and start a business. Mm-hmm. And that's really cool because we, we've impacted hundreds, probably thousands of people's lives telling them, okay, you have an idea, now what? And showing them over the course of a weekend what that looks like and what the next steps are. And I've really, really enjoyed doing that. Through that work and work with uh, the Create Columbus Commission, which is making the young professional community better in Columbus, mm-hmm. I've met a lot of people. And I really like that. And I've seen that by finding people in different communities, these circles, like you have the arts community, um, which could be music, it could be painting, you have the entrepreneurship community, you have the craft brewery community, retail, mm-hmm. fashion, all these communities, it's great. What you find in common in these places are people are passionate and they know a lot. Right. And it's really magical when you find people like that from different communities that haven't met and they meet and they find ways that they are related and their ideas and philosophies can be morphed to a different topic. Okay. And so I've really enjoyed over the last two years finding ways to cross-pollinate those communities. And it started with music and entrepreneurship because musicians are consummate entrepreneurs, probably some of the oldest entrepreneurs that have existed. Mm -hmm. And where they struggle, they make great product. What they don't understand is... Or that they think is great yeah, product. Yeah, right, right. They make a product. It's a very crowded market. Yeah. And so you have to differentiate yourself in the market. And a lot of that could be messaging. It could be marketing. Um, a lot of stuff that people who are artists, a lot of times look at and say, I don't want to be slimy and pushy and salesy and sell these things. Because this is their art. Exactly, right. exactly. But for anything to succeed and and be, make some money... You have to catch some breaks. You have to make sales. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, you can manufacture a lot of that if you, if you go about it the right way. And that's what marketers do. Mm-hmm. And so I, I try to help musicians look at their, their art as um, a business and um, people listen to their music as customers, essentially, mm-hmm. and, and, and bridge that gap so that they have a better chance of doing that full time because that's what they ultimately want to do. Right. So, yeah, I just I really like the, the community building work making new relationships, being the bridge between two people. I didn't realize this wasn't something everybody did, but I'm just constantly sending introductions to people. Okay. And saying, you should meet this person because I'll, I'll get coffee with somebody and they're working out a project that touches on something I've had a conversation about with somebody else. That you know somebody else is doing. And I'm saying, this person knows way more about that. You should talk to them about it and not me. And that's kind of a magical thing. So yeah. we've gone through sort of the, the silos of your work and frankly how they overlap a lot. Can you talk about how you prioritize your work and sort of manage your time? Mm-hmm. And this is, I, this is a skill. Time management and prioritization is a skill that I think comes 
um, naturally to a lot of people that get into product management or they wouldn't get into it in the first place. Okay. And being in product management makes you more attuned to do it. So, cause there's finite resources and exactly. they have to be allocated. Exactly. Everybody starts out with 24 hours in a day. You're probably sleeping like eight, a third of it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you work 40 hours a week, that brings you down to a hundred and well, sorry, it brings you down to 72 hours in a week that you have for free. Got it. <laughs> free time. If you sleep eight hours a day and work 40 hours a week. So how do I prioritize it? It's, it's kind of a gut feel. Obviously you do the things that you're completely obligated to do to other people. Like I, I am obligated to work at cross checks mm-hmm. for the majority of my week. And so that comes first pretty much all the time. If you look at your hours that are outside of the working hours, it's, it's sort of run on deadlines for create Columbus commission. If we have uh, an event coming out that needs organized or uh, a timeline with a, a key metric of success that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. I basically look at what is the most pressing deadline? What is my status on that item? And I attack those things first. It's, it's very linear to me. Okay. Um, and that comes pretty naturally, but my, my whole life is run on deadlines and that was taught to me in journalism. Okay. Because in journalism, if you are writing a story, uh, it's going to get printed that night and it's going to be out in people's hands the next day. And if you don't have your story written and to the editor by it was 3 PM at mm-hmm. that time, they can't edit it. It won't get run. Right. And so you just couldn't miss deadlines. Right. <laughs> and so for a long time I've been running on deadlines and that's, it's just very strict. It's ingrained. It's, this is the time this needs to be done and there are no excuses and no way around it. You find a way. Um, same thing comes up when you work with a, an engineering team building a product, if you have a deadline and um, a certain amount of functionality still to build, you kind of have to look at it as how can this get done? Mm-hmm. Because getting done is a foregone conclusion. It has to get done in a way. So right. how do we do it to get done by that time? And what do we define as done? Right. Um, so, Pressing deadlines first. If I have some slush time, it comes down to what, what do I care about doing at that, at that moment? Gotcha. Uh, personal projects, going to the gym, refilling my tank by hanging out with people that I enjoy hanging out with. There you go. What do you find inspiration in? In addition to the building things that connect with people and connecting with people one-on-one, what are the other th- unique things that you find inspiration in? I pay a lot of attention to comedy. Okay. And I do that because... Um, well, for, for a period of time, I thought that I was going to get into comedy. Okay. But lately I listen to a lot of podcasts and my two favorite podcasts involve comedians interviewing other comedians. And that is, you made it weird with Pete Holmes mm-hmm. and WTF with Mark Marin. Mm-hmm. They do an excellent job of interviewing, which I think is important, but comedians to, to be successful, what they're doing is finding absurdity in the real world. And then pointing it out, knowing that you've also noticed that, but maybe not registered it Mm -hmm. and making a joke out of it. Entrepreneurs do a lot of the same thing. They find absurdity in the real world, but then they find ways to solve for that absurdity. And by listening to comedy, it kind of tunes my eye to be present and notice things. Yeah. But also because those comedians notice things and they ask great questions, they get a lot of really interesting information out of the people they talk to. Right. Just like very similar to what you were doing with cross checks when you first started and sort of going out into the marketplace right. and saying, do you need this? Right. Cause I think a lot of the times, especially with the company I'm working for right now, you know, we identify a new product and we start talking to potential customers, but also start talking to 
potential partners and you sort of start realizing what additional opportunities that are in the marketplace that we weren't seeing either because we're not fully ingratiated in it or because we're so close to what mm-hmm. we think is supposed to be happening mm-hmm. that we, you know, we can't see the forest for the sake of the trees. If that's the way that phrase goes. Yeah. Asking good questions is so very important in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I learned this in journalism too, because you couldn't write unique stories without getting unique quotes and crafting right. them to your story. Well, but, and then you end up being the guy that's always asking, you know, how, what kind of music do you play? Yeah. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> or the, the end of halftime at a football game when you ask, like, what do you need to do to, to win this game? Well, we need to score more points. We need to execute. And it's like, that's something interesting. <laughs> so it also helps when you're talking to potential customers because you need to ask non-leading and non-biased questions so that you get actual good data. Mm-hmm. And where I see that manifest a lot is, let's take a startup weekend event. Teams will form around an idea for a product. First of all, talk people through how, how startup weekend goes, especially the sure. first part of it, so that there's an understanding of how it all works. Sure. So at startup weekend, we allow anybody to pitch ideas. And these people have all kinds of different backgrounds, designers, engineers, marketers, lawyers, teachers very diverse. On Friday night, we invite all of them to pitch an idea they have, and they have 60 seconds to do so. Then the group of people, which is usually 100 to 125, vote and narrow down their favorite ideas and form teams around them, usually Mm -hmm. 12 to 15 teams in a weekend. And they go validate that idea, build an MVP, as we're discussing earlier, and try to form a business model by the time they pitch that on Sunday. Mm -hmm. So, but like 75% of the ideas that get pitched aren't happening, Right. right? Right. Okay. Um, it's, it's, they're usually novel ideas or it's not really necessarily like if you, if you go to a startup weekend and pitch a ride sharing service that takes people from point A to point B, that's not going to get off the ground versus Uber that exists now. Right. Um, so usually pretty novel and to validate that they will write surveys and send them to people they think are their users. But a lot of times they'll basically spell out their idea. Like, we are the service that will take you from point A to point B, but it's in a different city. Would you use this? Right. <laughs> and that gives unrealistic data because the answers are yes or no. And, you know, people may be thinking maybe, but you haven't given them information on what's that going to cost? What, what are more? What is that experience like? Yeah. Um, and even if it is something that sounds like they're going to use, the real indicator of whether or not somebody will use a thing is if they pay money for it or if you actually get it in front of them and they use it without you asking them to. Mm-hmm. So asking questions is very important so you can you can lead these conversations with questions like, what are three problems that you face frequently in your work? And then you start to look for patterns. If you ask that question to 20 people that you think are your target user and 15 of them mention the same thing, and that is the problem that you think you're trying to solve anyway, Mm -hmm. that is great information that says you may have found a real problem that people are aware of. If they're not aware of a problem, it's not a very painful problem, and they're probably not going to use it. Of course, there's exceptions to this. Like Snapchat, nobody was saying, I wish I could take photos that would disappear in 10 seconds. Right. But those are kind of rare, and not not the, uh, the exception, not the rule. Right. While you have sort of settled back into, I would say, a more comfortable space because you're earning a paycheck, you're working for somebody else. It's not it's not all on you to make sure that Crosschecks succeeds. What advice would you give to somebody who's sort of in a space where they're thinking, I want to forge out on my own and, and 
be an entrepreneur and I have this great idea, what advice would you give to them? The best advice is to start. And that doesn't mean start filing an LLC and, and, and running the company, quitting everything and doing that. Start means start making steps towards that reality. Okay. Meaning if you have this idea, talk to people about it, people that you think are going to be users of it. Run some validation. Run a pilot if you can, if it's easy. I, I have this idea for um, an events format that I want to run. And okay. in a couple of months, I'm literally just going to do that and okay. see how it goes. <laughs> but the beauty in something like that is I can do those things while I'm still working at cross checks, making an impact and being valuable there. I can do it in my free time and I'm not putting all the risk on my back because it's not necessary yet. Mm-hmm. But if you're just talking about this idea, talking and talking, there's no novel idea out there. Somebody else is thinking the same thing somewhere. And so time may be limited. It may be a first to market thing or, you know, an idea just isn't really worth much. You have to do something with it so that other people can be impacted and value can be created. So really you need to start working towards it, whether it's conversations with people, whether it's running a pilot, uh, it's very important. That's good enough. Talk about some of the other, in addition to Startup Weekend and the other things that you're involved in, what are the other positive things are, do you see happening in Columbus? I'm involved with the Create Columbus Commission, which is making great strides in helping young professionals serve as co-creators for the city. We are, we're in the conversation about transit, but also we've been providing sort of micro-seed funding through our grant program. Mm -hmm. um, we've been improving financial literacy and wellness. And, and even trying to amplify the urban pulse, making Columbus a better place to, to play. Mm -hmm. Outside of that, I'm involved with uh, the Columbus Songwriters Association, which has been really, really cool. Uh, I, I was previously the host of the monthly showcase where we had something, sometimes 20 artists come and share two new original songs with, a, with an audience of strangers where they could provide feedback to that artist. Okay. That was awesome. There's an events uh, group, kind of an underground events group that... Uh, I'm starting to help run some of their things and I'll keep that kind of, yeah, I probably shouldn't even said it, Okay, but <laughs> they do some really cool stuff. It's, it's, they, they keep it quiet and it's just, um, it's just exciting and, and fun and new, but I, I see a lot of cool things happening in Columbus, the smart city grant. Mm -hmm. What I like about Columbus a lot is as opposed to like a Pittsburgh or a Cleveland, there's not a lot of. Uh, historical baggage to the city. There wasn't a, an industry that thrived and now we're trying to re-identify re ourselves. Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of a blank slate and it's growing quickly. We just crossed the 2 million mark in population and the 3 million mark is going to happen much faster than the last million did. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the people who are driving that change are still very accessible so you can be a part of it. I think there's going to be some real strides made in, in public art in the city, which is a huge positive. Mm -hmm. Where are we sitting right now? The Idea Foundry is, is an incredible asset to the city. It's beautiful. It looks like a mixed-use space that you would find in, in New York or San Francisco. Little plug, we're going to be doing our next startup weekend here. Oh, great. As a maker-themed event, every idea that's pitched will be a maker idea, and the teams will have to create something. Physical? Yeah. Okay. That's, a, that's June 23rd. Okay. But that's there's a lot of fun things happening here i think a lot of construction all the time ohio state's building new mm -hmm. dorms and growing and getting bigger all the time yeah but um i think it's a good time to be here great jay thank you so much for your time yeah thanks for having me
Thank you for listening to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. Again, you can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Please rate, subscribe, share this episode of the Confluence Cast with your friends, family, contacts, enemies, your favorite entrepreneur. If you're interested in sponsoring the Confluence Cast, get in touch with us. We can be reached by email at info at theconfluencecast.com. Our theme music was composed by Benji Robinson. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. Have a great week. 